Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Monday the 14th of September. I'm Tom Tilley and in a moment we're going to brief you on deep cleaning. We haven't had one outbreak or one person even suspect with COVID, but we're really anally attentive. Yeah, you'll find out what deep cleaning actually involves and what a fogging machine is. Kind of think Ghostbusters. Uh, that's in just a moment. First, Annika Smethurst is here to talk through the big stories of the day. Freedom is a step closer for Melbourne today with restrictions easing off slightly. The city's five million people will be allowed out for two hours of exercise instead of one, while the curfew has been pushed back to 9pm. Which brings small, I fully acknowledge, small changes uh, that allow for more social interaction and more time outside. That's Premier Dan Andrews. Yesterday, the state government in Victoria announced its biggest support package ever, $3 billion to help 80,000 businesses and a quarter of Australia's economy stay afloat. We've never seen anything like this before. I understand that businesses are desperate, not just for profits, but for their people. It'll mean cash grants of up to $30,000 for hospitality. I imagine that won't be enough for some business who will probably be going under. Um, Payroll tax will also be deferred for some businesses. Here's Jobs Minister in Victoria, Martin Pakula. That crucial cash flow will be primarily targeted at those businesses which continue in the next stage to still be closed, uh, heavily restricted or restricted. Look, there's still concern from some that this won't be enough. The heads of some of Australia's biggest companies like West Farmers, BHP and CSL are asking for Melbourne's curfew to be lifted immediately. Yeah, the pressure is certainly mounting on the Victorian government to ease certain measures, particularly the curfew coming under scrutiny um, after last week where we found out that it wasn't the health authorities that asked for it. Um, Two prominent Melbourne uni academics that were actually involved in the modelling were quoted in the Weekend Australian newspaper calling for the restrictions to be eased. They said that the modelling that they worked on didn't justify the decisions the Premier made, um, particularly drawing attention to that benchmark of less than five cases needed for the easing of lockdown measures at the end of October. Look, it comes off the back of a weekend of more anti-lockdown protests in Melbourne too. Yesterday, 74 people were arrested during a pretty full-on rally at the city's iconic Queen Victoria Market. Yeah, pretty hectic scenes at Vic Markets yesterday. Uh, Still, the Premier has essentially ruled out revising his reopening roadmap. And the Californian bushfires have sparked eerily similar pictures uh, as our own fires, but also an eerily similar political debate where you've got one side talking about climate change, the other side talking about forest management. At least 33 people have died in the wildfires that left parts of America's West Coast looking like a war zone. Over the weekend, half a million people were also under an evacuation order in Oregon. And just like we saw here in Australia, the left side or the progressive side of politics is blaming the scale of the fires on climate change. Um, That's one of the key points Joe Biden has been making. He's the Democrats' candidate for the November presidential election. Uh, And then on the more conservative side of politics, well, here's Donald Trump. Tonight our hearts are with all of the communities in the West battling devastating wildfires. I'm going there the day after tomorrow. But, you know, it is about forest management. Please remember the words, very simple, forest management. It's pretty haunting, isn't it, Annika, on so many levels? Hopefully they don't lose this moment to actually do something about it so we prevent this in the future. I feel that this was front of mind here in Australia back at the start of the year, but due to the coronavirus, uh, I guess the caravans moved on and we aren't thinking about managing fires again coming into this season. Yeah, and I think a lot of people who are really concerned about climate change and that we're not doing enough um, hope that there was 
some silver lining in the horrific summer we had that it would really lead to more urgency when it comes to action. But yeah, as you said, um, the pandemic has pretty much wiped that from a lot of our memories. And Tom Hanks has been caught up in more off-screen drama over Queensland's controversial border closures. On Friday, Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton slammed Queensland for letting the actor and his crew come in and quarantine at a private residence when Australians have been rejected for funerals or final goodbyes. Uh, There's no consistency. I mean, if you're Tom Hanks from California, you're okay. If you're Tom Hanks from Chermside or Castle Hill, sorry, uh, you're not coming in even to your brother's funeral or to your dying daughter. It's just unacceptable. That's Peter Dutton speaking on Nine on Friday. Then on Saturday, Queensland's Health Minister Minister Stephen Miles accused Peter Dutton of lying. He says no one can actually get in without approval from the country's border force, which is a department Peter Dutton has responsibility for. Non-residents coming to Australia need to be permitted to come here by border force. And And what that means is that when Peter Dutton launched that extraordinary attack during the week. He was lying. Yesterday, Peter Dutton hit back on insiders. Mr Hanks wouldn't have been approved by Border Force without the letter of support from Stephen Miles and from the Queensland Government. That's that's very clear. And guess what? That letter has now hit the newspapers. News Corp published uh, the letter sent from Queensland's Chief Health Officer, Dr Jeanette Young, uh, asking Mr Dutton's department to let Tom Hanks and 11 others in. So the whole thing's playing out in the media now, Annika. Does Queensland have a point that it was a bit rich for Peter Dutton to launch that big attack on Friday when his department was also part of that decision-making chain? Look, I think nobody has clean hands in this one. It was a bit rich for Dutton to come out late last week. He was talking about internal borders, though. It really, this issue heated up about people not being able to attend funerals. We've seen a tit for tat since then. Queensland don't have clean hands either. My understanding is, in some ways, Peter Dutton is right on this. Home Affairs wouldn't and Border Force wouldn't have actually approved this should they not have had a request from the Queensland government on a health issue. So, look, both of them have had to sign off and it just makes people increasingly angry that if you're a normal person, you can't manage to get to those important final moments or happy moments. But if you're a movie star or an AFL player, you can. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see if any other really heartbreaking cases come up to shift that debate this week. It was um, really sad, basically, hearing all those stories from last week of people not being able to visit dying loved ones or go to funerals. I guess it will really come down to whether Queensland can get the exemptions right and manage their policy in a, in a fair way. All right, Annika, we'll catch you tomorrow when we talk about the Sydney Olympics, a very exciting topic. Uh, right now, Jan Friends jumping in as we talk about COVID deep cleans. Hello, it's Jan Fran. Turbo fogging, terminal cleaning, decontamination. It's just another day for our COVID cleaners. They are, of course, the men and women in the full hazmat suits who uh, show up to a premises anytime there has been a COVID outbreak. Yeah, and their job's to walk into those places and give them a clean, but not just any clean. No. A deep clean. Deep cleaning. Deep clean. Deep cleaning. Deep clean. Deep clean. Deep cleaning. So what exactly is a deep clean and how does it differ to just any old regular clean? And also, what is turbo fogging? (laughs) Yeah, we'll get to those questions in a minute when we speak to a cleaner who's pivoted from murders and meth labs to COVID cleaning. Yeah, but first, let's learn a little bit more about how the virus itself actually travels 
and how it behaves in different circumstances and different environments. Microbiologist Professor Paul Griffin from the University of Queensland is here with us this morning. Paul, can you give us an indication of how this virus behaves exactly? How does it travel? How does it get transmitted? It's spread mainly through what we call droplet transmission, which is where people that have the virus expel little particles that we call droplets that contain lots of virus. And then people can either breathe those in directly or touch them after they've landed on a surface and then touch their face and thereby infecting themselves. So it is entirely possible to contract COVID from touching the same surface as somebody who might be positive. Absolutely. So if someone coughs or sneezes on a handrail, for example, you go and touch that shortly after. And then you touch what we call your mucous membranes on your face, so your eyes, your nose or your mouth. You can easily transfer enough virus that way that you can become infected, definitely. So is that how a lot of cases have been transferred or is it just possible that it does, but actually that's fairly rare? It can happen. Um, In terms of the proportions, it's hard to know. We think it's more direct droplet transmission, but certainly coming into contact with the virus on surfaces is a very significant way of contracting this infection. How long does the virus actually stay on surfaces and what particular surfaces are we talking about? That's a bit of a difficult question to answer because there's about six variables that contribute to how long it survives on the surface. The the temperature, the humidity, um, what sort of surface it is, how Mm. absorbent it might be, how much virus is put on there because we know the virus doesn't go from 100% to zero after a certain time. It gradually decays or gradually goes away. So if there's lots of virus on a surface, it'll last longer than if there's a little bit. And it also depends on what else is on the surface. So for example, on the skin, we have lots of other bacteria, the microbiome, which contribute to getting rid of the virus a bit more quickly. And it also depends if there's been any cleaning products put on that surface as well. So lots of things contribute to that, but it's basically from a a few minutes up to probably three or four days even. Should we move on to talking about atmospheres and how long it can stay, you know, in, in, in the air? Yeah, probably a few hours, but the majority of those same variables also contribute there. So it really depends on the the conditions. So, um, and we tend to refer to it, as I say, as droplet rather than airborne. We don't think it's truly airborne, but at times it can be. And there's some subtle differences there in terms of how we respond, depending on whether we think it's droplet or airborne. But the simple answer there is a couple of hours is probably the longest. The way you explained droplet versus airborne was like they were two different things, but don't, aren't the droplets airborne? It's basically a spectrum, basically. And while the droplets can be in the air, airborne is a definition that we use for for much smaller particles. And the reason there's a big difference there is the smaller particles can travel further Mm. through air conditioning, for example, and persist for longer in the environment. So droplet actually refers to slightly bigger particles. And because they're bigger and heavier, they tend to land a bit more quickly. And so that's where surfaces do become more of an issue with those droplet particles after they land and if people touch them and then touch their face. So while they're both in the air, airborne refers to much smaller particles that are a bit more of a problem, in fact, than the droplet ones. So what does it take to get rid of this virus on a surface? I'm just thinking a positive person has walked into a pub. uh, We know that they've been in there. The cleaners are going to come in. What does it actually take to make sure that there is no more virus in that premises? Well, one of the good things about this virus is it's what we call an enveloped virus. So it's got this little shell around it, and that shell is actually quite susceptible to breaking down. So uh, if it gets too dry or too hot, it'll break down. But a lot of uh, detergents and bleach-based products can get rid of it fairly readily. And that's why our strategy with a lot of COVID-safe plans and in hospitals has been to really regularly wipe down high-touch surfaces. So things like handrails and buttons and doorknobs, if we wipe those down regularly, 
then we'll get rid of the virus from those surfaces and take that away. But I guess the other side of it too is if those surfaces are less likely to become infected, and what I mean there is if people do their hand hygiene well, if they don't go out to one of those places if they're sick, then there's not going to be much there to clean. Can you give us more detail on, based on our knowledge, how it transmits? Like <coughs> what else is crucial for a deep clean to really nail it? So, I mean, I guess those those deep cleans are still paying attention to the high-touch surfaces, but getting to a lot more of them than is feasible to do, for example, in a regular wipe down in a, in a business. Um, but also, you know, we know it can survive on other surfaces, so um, things that are a bit more absorbent like chairs and things like that, and they're a bit harder to clean with a wipe down. So that's where those, uh, those deep cleans really come in, where often they'll use something, uh, some kind of fogging machine or something that's in a spray that can actually penetrate some of those slightly more absorbent materials. So while the virus doesn't last quite as long on those, if we're doing a deep clean because there's been a, a case in one of those situations, we need something that's going to penetrate more than just the surfaces that are easy to wipe down. That was Paul Griffin, an infectious diseases physician and microbiologist from the University of Queensland. So given what he has told us about how the virus spreads, let's find out how the deep cleaning process works. Sandra Pankhurst has been a trauma cleaner for decades. Uh, She's worked cleaning up murder scenes and, and meth labs that have been busted by police. Her cleaning company, STC Services, is now doing COVID deep cleans. And Sandra explained how the process works when they're called in. We have three different methods of the COVID clean and one would be a um, a detergent and then followed up by a disinfectant washdown. We have the steaming method, which would kill anything on site. And then we have the fogging method, which is the new one that we've got out, which we've researched and developed into. It's a TGA approved and it's more efficient and less costly. People can live in there. People can be, um, it's just like a, a slight, slight chlorine smell in the room. And so that you can be assured that um, it's being done properly. So what is fogging? Because I've seen that word um, thrown around, but I'm not sure exactly what it is. Well, if we do a, a bio clean or something on a deceased body or something like that, it creates a fog in a room that you can't see through. But with this new chemical, you don't need as much and it's so fine and so such a small microbial that we can spray it in there and in 30 minutes it's touch dry. You're disinfecting the air or the atmosphere. Exactly, and it goes into every nook and cranny. Do you know what I mean? Because, like, sometimes you can't quite get into certain areas, so we sort of concentrate the nozzle so that people can get the the intensity of the um, product. And would it be fair to say that the fogging machine, this sort of silver device with a long nozzle looks a lot like the thing the Ghostbusters used? Uh, Yes, yes. We have um, two types of foggers. We have a heavy-duty turbo fogger, which is really for outdoor, for playgrounds, for car parks or the likes of. Um, And then we have the smaller ones that we hand operate in the rooms. We can't use the turbo foggers inside because they're petrol-driven. And, of course, you know, it would have the poisoning of the carbon monoxide. So what's it like when you're called up to go to a – have you been to a nursing home where there's been a serious outbreak? And what's it like to go in and and deep clean in that kind of environment? Is Is it quite a frightening job? It, it can be quite intense. I personally don't go myself because I'm like, you know, too old. And also I have a serious lung condition. 
<clears throat> so I have my manager, my office manager, and the staff. They're all fully trained. We could do refreshers every month, um, everything like that. But it is very intense. It's very intense because we've got to make sure it's right. We only get one opportunity to make sure it's mm. right. Yeah, the stakes are high um, and you are they on are. the front lines as cleaners. You are walking into venues where there has been a positive case. Um, what yes. have some of your workers told you about that? Is there an anxiety um, among cleaners having to do this job that they might um, possibly contract COVID? I think more so when it first came about because they're a little bit nervous and we just had to reassure them that, you know, you are trained in biological waste. You are trained to do these things properly. So let's not get too freaked out about it, but we do offer them counselling services as well. We are very blessed because we temperature check morning, temperature check night, sign in, sign out. We haven't had one outbreak or one person even suspect with COVID, but we're really anally attentive. You've done trauma cleaning for a while. You've um, oh, 30 bloody years. Yeah, <laughs> 30 bloody years. You're, you're all over it. I'm sure you've been in some um, pretty, uh, I guess, gnarly, grisly situations. How does COVID yeah. cleaning compare to trauma cleaning? Look, once you get over the initial shock of a, a trauma clean, of like someone's dead or something like that, because it's very confronting in the beginning when you start doing all this, um, it's a shock to the system. But after a while, it's like, I don't mean to be crass about it, but it's a water off a duck's back. It's what you're trained for. It's what you do. It's how you go about it. And our catch cries, care, compassion and dignity, where we have to look after the clients first and foremost that are left behind. So if we don't look after them, we're not doing them the proper service. Apart from cleaning, we need to look after their well-being so that they can get on with their life as well. So that's a little bit more mental health type stuff. Mm. Um, and we do train in mental health. That was Sandra Pankhurst, trauma cleaner who now runs STC services. I like the sound of those petrol-powered turbo foggers. <laughs> you know, I sort of I like the look of them too. Every time I see the deep cleaners on TV, I feel quite comfortable. They feel look safer. I feel safer. I look they look like they're doing a pretty serious job and you know, they have to do in circumstances like this. Yeah, I think after quarantine Contact tracing, um, not much further down that list of very important people are these deep cleaners. Absolutely. All right, tomorrow on The Briefing, we celebrate 20 years since the opening ceremony of the Sydney Olympics. And the winner is Sydney. A Podcast One production.